The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Very pleased to, to introduce uh, Manon Nouvion to you, who is a an IRC funded postdoc in the uh, or sorry PhD student uh, in no, inadvertently promoted you Manon um, in the uh, in the Department of History here. Um, she is working on uh, radical memory in nineteenth century Britain, which is uh, slightly outside of our normal orbit as. Uh, an early modern history seminar, but I think it has uh, some very interesting uh, reflections back on the early modern, but also uh, you know, makes, makes connections uh, in, into, a, into a, a time period and a set of methodologies that um, will be doubtless familiar to many of you. Um, Manon has, uh, is completing her PhD uh, thesis uh, here this, this year. Um, it's, it's due for submission quite soon. So we're very grateful that she's taken time out of a fairly hectic uh, schedule to, uh, to speak to the seminar today. She's also published um, a number of pieces derived from her, her thesis. She, there's an article, a very interesting article in the Journal of Victorian Culture last year, which you, you might want to follow up. And she has a, a number of essays forthcoming in the um, uh, in essay collections uh, over the next year or two, one edited by, uh, one collection edited by Michel Bial. Um, so, um, as usual, uh, if you'd like to um, to raise questions at the, the end of the, um, the end of the, uh, the talk, um, just uh, type them into the uh, chat facility or the question and answer facility and I can, I can pass them on. So, Manon, if you'd, uh, Joel, if you'd like to uh, switch screens and Manon, if you'd like to, um, to uh, get going. Um, great, I hope everybody can hear me. Thanks, so um, I'm finishing up my PhD. I was going to say I'm a final year, but I'm super I'm a final year plus now. Um, so my my research focuses on, as you were saying, the study of uh, memory and commemorative practices in 9th century British popular radicalism. And today, as the title suggests, I'll be mostly talking about one movement within um, British radicalism, which was the, the Chartist movement. So um, just to present it briefly, Chartism was a working class political movement that demanded parliamentary reform, um, and in particular, universal manhood suffrage. So at this time, that would have meant mostly the extension of the, of the franchise to the male uh, members of the British working class. Um, and it was active in Britain roughly between 1838 and the mid-1850s. So um, part of my work, so looking at memorization and commemorations within Chartism, is concerned with the material culture of remembrance that was created by the movement. And this included a few monuments that were built um, in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, I should also start um, by mentioning that uh, some of the monuments I'll actually be talking about, they don't exist anymore. Um, and they had actually disappeared by the end of the 9th century even, so only a few decades after they were built. Um, and it is, it is a fairly significant obstacle to um, the study of the material culture of popular radicalism in general. Just simply the fact that if, 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 if very few objects that were made 
die of four nineteenth-century radicals have survived to this day. So it's true of the monuments, although they did fare a bit better than other types of objects and artifacts. Um, it's true, for example, as well of the stipends of Charlie's flags and banners that were produced at the same period and of which absolutely none have survived to this day. So, so we're also talking here about kind of writing the history of um, a material culture that no longer exists in its physical form. And it's obviously not um, an impossible task, otherwise I wouldn't be here presenting my research today. But um, a lot can be done just simply by using um, more conventional historical sources. Um, the main one for me would have been the press. And I was lucky enough that the Charis reported a lot of their activities in, um, in particular in the Northern Star, which was the main Charis newspaper at the time. Um, but also you can find sketches or um, artistic presentations, sometimes photographic collections as well, though not for the monuments I'm gonna talk about today. Um, but it is important to keep in mind that paradoxically, the, the kind of the material aspect of the study of this material culture of remembrance is actually often missing. Um, so in, in terms of historical context, the 19th century is a period that witnessed quite important changes in attitudes towards death and memorialization. And these changes were um, notably visible in a kind of a growing commemorative trend of building monuments to record the names of the dead. There are kind of two um, aspects to this phenomenon. Um, there was on the one hand, the rise of the cemetery as a place of pilgrimage and commemoration. Um, in Great Britain, it's a practice that was um, may maybe most famously advocated by um, William Godwin in 1809 in his uh, essay on sepulchres that called for the erection of memorials over the graves of those he called the illustrious dead in all ages. Um, and his proposal was largely realized um, in the following decades, really. Um, in particular, with the emergence of um, garden cemeteries that were built on the model of the, of the Père Lachaise in Paris that um, opened in 1804. Um, the most obvious example of garden cemetery here in Ireland would be Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. Um, in, in Britain, this notably led to the creation of the Magnificent Seven Cemeteries, um, which included um, Kensal Green Cemetery, uh, which is important for this paper because that is where the child's leader Fergus O'Connor was buried in 1855. The second aspect of this trend of monument building was the increasing number of statues and monuments that were being commissioned um, to honor the great heroes of the nation. So what um, French historian Maurice Agunon has called the stage mania that kind of seized many European countries in the 19th century. Um, so just to give you an idea of the scale of this in Great Britain, um, between 1793 and 1823, so over a 30-year period, there were 37 monuments to officers and politicians commissioned in Britain. And this trend really just accelerated in the, in the following decades um, to the extent that by 1850, um, the Times newspaper was complaining that this monument mania was going against the intended value of public monuments as mementos of what should be rare and great qualities normally only found in the lives of a selected few. And this criticism was completely ignored. Um, so for example, there were 44 additional commemorative statues that were built in London alone um, between 1851 and 1890. So it is in this context of kind of frenetic production of public memorials that the Charlie's monuments should be understood as well. Um, I'll just share my screen there with you. 
can see this. Uh, so this is a list of the monuments in question. Uh, the dates I've put down there are the dates at which they were inaugurated. Uh, most of the time they, they had actually been in the works for a couple years prior to their uh, unveiling. Um, and then in terms of who they were actually celebrating, so the first monument was built in 1840, inauguration in 1842, um, and was a monument to Henry Hunt, um, who was the main leader of the previous generation of reformers in Britain. And he was in particular um, the main speaker at the, at the reform meeting that happened in Manchester um, on St. Peter's Field in, on the 16th of August, 1819, there was a very violent repress by the authorities um, and that was then um, called the, the Peterloo Massacre. And he was a, a figure that was celebrated and commemorated by the Chartists um, in the next couple of decades, uh, quite broadly in the country. So he was, um, he was a forefather of Chartism, that's how he was portrayed and he was celebrated as the martyr of the cause of reform. Um, the next two monuments were um, monuments to Samuel Holbury in Sheffield and to Joseph Williams and Alexander Sharp in London. Um, these men were not quite as famous as Hunt in their lifetime. What they had in common was that they were local charity leaders. Um, they were all three imprisoned um, because of the part they took in the charity agitation. Um, in their respective um, native towns. Um, and they all three died in prison. Um, and this provoked a very big outcry in the tourist movement. They were, they were given grand public funerals afterwards. And, and so monuments were eventually built over their graves. So they were, they were just like Han, they were um, commemorated by the movement as, as martyrs of the cause of, of Chartism. So they were important figures, even if quite, not quite as famous in their lifetimes. And the final two monuments, finally, are um, monuments to Fergus O'Connor, whom I've mentioned briefly already. Um, so O'Connor was the main uh, national leader of Chartism, um, and he died in 1855, and so he was buried in Kensal Green Cemetery. He was also given a grand public funeral, and he was also uh, portrayed as a martyr um, of, of the Chartist coast. So these were the men that uh, had monuments eventually. Uh, built the memory. So um, there are two important things to note from the start. Um, the first one you might have noticed looking at this list is that, um, say for the very last one, so for a statue in Nottingham, all these monuments were built in cemeteries. That's something I'll, I'll go back to, but it's, it's an important dimension. Um, the second um, one is that they were all funded by public subscriptions, um, almost exclusively from the working classes. It's also very much in this sense that I, I define them as Chinese monuments because they were they were truly funded by the movement. Um, and the question I'd like to address in this seminar is, is that of the political significance of um, monument building as commemorative practice for an opposition movement like Chartism. And then more generally, the, the question of the physical presence of memory in um, the immediate environment of, of Chartist supporters and of what they can tell us of maybe more private and quotidian forms of commemoration and remembrance of the radical dead. Um, so, as we've seen, the, the idea of erecting um, stone memorials to publicly honor the memory of the illustrious dead was, was not new when Chartism undertook to build its own monuments. Within popular radicalism itself, um, there had been an attempt by William Cobbett to fund a monument to, to honor the memory of Thomas Paine in the early 1820s. 
So I won't be going too much into detail about this uh, attempt in particular, but I'm happy to answer questions about it because it's, it's quite fascinating, really. But to give a brief summary, um, Kabesh, who was then exiled in the US, decided in 1819 to dig up Penn's bones and to bring them back to England with him with a view to organize a grand public funeral to, um, for the remains and to have a, a colossal statue of fame, preferably in bronze, um, erected over, over the remains afterwards. So his ambition was to turn Penn's grave into a site of pilgrimage for the people. And he justified this by stating that Penn was a real English hero and was, as a, as a result, more deserving of this honor um, and of figuring in the English pantheon of great men than a pitch or a fox. And here we have a glimpse of something that really was at the core um, of the Charlie's campaigns to be memorials later on, which is a desire to challenge the official national memory that was promoted by the state and to, to both create their own pantheon of heroes um, and to claim for the radical greats and for those they call the friends of freedom and democracy, the same right to memorialization and commemoration as the one that was granted to uh, monarchs, statesmen, and, and war heroes. Um, Cobb's projects were never realized. Um, he, he didn't really manage to gather support for it at the time, but it is quite, it's actually quite interesting to consider it because it did prefigure a lot of the commemorative program that was um, put in place by the Chartists just a couple of decades later. Um, part of his failure was due to poor timing. Um, he, he launched his penal campaign at a time when um, the radical movement was really preoccupied by the Peterloo massacre that I've mentioned. Um, and that meant that a lot of the movements already quite limited financial resources uh, were being directed towards supporting the Peterloo victims rather than towards erecting the monument. Um, there was another argument though that was um, put forward by the radicals at the time, um, which was that building a monument to Miss Spain would be, and I quote, nothing less than a revival of monkish superstition. So there was an uneasiness among radical supporters at the idea of adopting a practice that looks a bit too much like idolatry in their minds. And we can still see traces of that ambivalence towards monument building uh, in the early years of Chartism. So, in the, in the late 1830s, the Charist attitude towards monument building was really kind of oscillated between disdain for the inanity of the memorials that, um, that were raised to the so-called great men of the elite, so the Pitts and the Nelsons, and those they called the many imbecile kings. Um, and there was on the other hand, a desire to see similar honors paid to those they considered to be the real heroes of the people. Um, and there was also this idea that acts could speak louder than stone and, what, and that the cherries could, by their actions, pay tribute to their radical forefather in a more efficient and more genuine way than um, what O'Connor has called the bedobing of the marketplace with inanimate figures called emblems of recollection that was performed by the middle and upper classes. So really the unveiling of Hunt's monument in 1842 represented a relatively important commemorative shift for the Chartist movement. Um, and it did open the way to the funding and building of more memorials. So you have the list there. Um, I've already mentioned briefly the monuments to Holbury and then the one to Williamson Sharp. Um, in addition to the memorial that was built over O'Connor's grave, there were also several initiatives that were launched in the immediate um, aftermath of his death. 
uh, to have monuments to his memory. So there was one um, in Arconerville, which was the first settlement of his Charis, Charis Cooperative Land Company. Uh, there was also a project to have um, a statue of O'Connor built alongside a thoroughfare in London, which the other day would be extremely visible. Um, there was one in Nottingham, and there was also um, at some stage a project to have one built in Scotland. Um, so say for the last two monuments that you can see there, so the one in Kensal Green and, and Nottingham, these projects were never realized either. But they are quite indicative of how widely accepted and even desirable the erection of public memorials had become for British radicals by, by the 1850s. So then the question really is, is, what was the significance of these monuments for Chartism? Um, and politically first, they were quite important statements in the ongoing battle of the movement for the control of public space. Much of the Chariot agitation for parliamentary reform was based on mass demonstrations and the display of numbers to mark the radical presence in the public spheres. Um, Chariotism was a democratic movement, so there was a very um, symbolical and metaphorical aspect to, um, to their attempt to take over public space and to claim it for the working classes. And, and in that way, the graves of the radical heroes um, and the monuments that were erected over them had that potential to be permanent reminders of this democratic claim and to be permanent member, reminders in a way um, that processions couldn't because they had to be temporary by, by their very nature. So in um, privately or municipally owned cemeteries like Kensal Green Cemetery, um, Sheffield Cemetery and Victoria Park Cemetery, this required the purchase of a burial plot first, um, which is something that would have been really inaccessible to the great majority of working class men and women that made up the, the following of terrorism. And that's something we have to be aware as well when we look at these um, monuments that the, the, there were very practical and most importantly financial limitations that the movement was really bound to face. Um, the productions of permanent memorials in that period for anyone really depended on the ability to mobilize a large community among which it would be possible to raise a substantial fund. And for a working class radicals, for a working class movement like Chartism, um, this community really had to be a national one if they had any hopes to collect enough funds to build that kind of memorials they wanted to have. Um, so it's also important to remember that the material condition of the working classes called for a very pragmatic approach of commemorations. And in this approach, the cultural imperative of securing a decent funeral had priority over the raising of memorial. So it's really quite significant that um, the men that the Charis instituted as martyrs were granted not only a permanent burial place, but also that a monument funded by public subscription was built over each of their graves. So um, the building of public monuments, and this is an argument that's notably put forward by um, Paul Pickering and Alex Tyrell, who've done quite a bit of work on monuments to reformers in Britain and uh, on the idea that they constitute um, contested sites. Um, so for them, the, the building public monuments was a way for the charities to challenge the establishment for the right to salute their heroes and proclaim the values that they represented. Now, of course, um, central public sites were obviously very rarely accessible to them. This is also why O'Connor's statue in Nottingham is so remarkable. Um, 
because it was built in the arborescence in a very public space that wasn't a bit different from the cemetery really. Um, but if these central sites were inaccessible, tombstones funeral monuments could be quite potent alternative means of conveying and displaying the radical message in public space, especially at the time when um, the cemetery was becoming a more, a more likely place of visit and pilgrimage for Victorians. Um, the cemetery is really that space between private and public, and the charities were able to use that at their advantage to display the radical message. So, for example, we can have a look at. So, this is um, O'Connor's monument in Kensal Green Cemetery. It's hard to read the inscription today, but um, luckily it was reported in the press, so you can um, kind of piece it up uh, together thanks to that. So, the inscription on, on O'Connor's monument um, very proudly established charism ownership over it um, by stating that it had been erected thanks to the generous subscription of chiefly, sorry, chiefly from the working classes that it, it commemorated the patriot, which was a very logic term uh, for popular radicals at the time. Um, another example would be, um, this is Samuel Holbury's uh, tombstones um, and likewise it really emphasized the, the Holbury's patriotic dedication to radicalism. Um, and his willingness to suffer for the cause. And that's the kind of inscription that people wandering in cemeteries could stop uh, to read. Um, the most striking charity funeral monument though was probably that of um, Joseph Williams and Alexander Sharp in Victoria Park Cemetery. And as you could see on this, this is also unfortunately the, the only one for which I haven't been able to find any sort of pictorial representation. Um, we know there was an engraving that was produced at the time and that was sold to help fund the monument, but haven't been able to find any surviving copy of it. Um, luckily, the, it was described in the Charles Press, so we do, um, we do roughly know what it looked like. Um, it seemed to have been a Nobel exhibit on the, on the model of the one um, erected for Hunt in Manchester. Um, it was about three meters high. Um, it was made of Portland stone, which is the same stone that was used for O'Connor's monument in Kensal Green, so that could give you an idea of what it might have looked like. Um, um, it was inscribed with the names of the deceased on it, and then um, it was decoration on each four sides with the what the church called the bundle of sticks emblematical of union. And there was finally um, a cap of liberty, an actual cap of liberty um, that was put on top of it. And the story of this monument is, is, um, is actually a really good illustration of the struggle that was at play in, in the cemetery as well um, to enter Charism's presence in public space. Um, and that's the case first, because even if the church legally owned the burial plot, and so even if they were in theory entitled to erect the monument they wanted, they actually um, still had to obtain permission from the cemetery, the cemetery company's directors regarding the content of the epitaph. Um, in this case, their original intent was to have victims of the Whigs inscribed on the monument, um, which unsurprisingly led to a dispute with the directors of the cemetery. Um, and the charities eventually had to give up on that and to and just to settle on um, having simply the names of um, Sharp and Williams inscribed on it. So they were able to incorporate quite contested symbols of radicalism in the design of the memorial, but they, they actually had to lose a battle to get there. And you do have that impression in the archives as well, that they, 
the, they had to settle down for the cap of liberties, the, the actual inscription they wanted to have on the monument. So it, was, it wasn't a complete success when it was arrested. Um, but the story doesn't quite stop there. So in, in May 1851, so only um, three months after its erection, the, the monument was vandalized and the cap of liberty that surrounded it was stolen. The Chinese um, publicly denounced what they, they called the desecration of the, of the memorial um, and the wanton outrage of seeing a symbol emblematical of the cause for which these men had sacrificed their lives being stolen. Um, they threatened legal action um, they started legal action if nothing was done to do justice to the movement and to the dead. Um, so don't, we don't really know whether it was because of public pressure or because the, the threat of being brought to court actually worked. But by July, the cemetery company informed the charities that they would pay for the repair and that they would replace the cap of liberty that had been stolen. The chairman of the charity's public meeting, where the news was announced, um, described this win as, I quote, a lesson taught to the rich and powerful that public opinion must be consulted and that union among working men was alone necessary to achieve other and mightier results. So this dispute with the cemetery directors was really presented as just another episode um, of popular radicalism's fight for reform. It wasn't a separate thing. It was really much part of their, of their campaign for parliamentary reform. And so this victory was not just um, that of Williams and Sharp's friends and admirers. It was really the people's victory and, and the victory of democracy in, in the Charlie's mind. Now, I'd just like to take a second here to really think about how remarkable it really is that the Charlie's obtained that members of the middle and upper class, so members of the establishment, um, had to pay for the display of what was effectively their, their um, the display of the cap of liberty, so the very uh, emblematical symbol of insurrection. And they had to pay for the display of this symbol um, in what was their own property. Um, in addition to this kind of very political significance of monument, um, another function of the Charis Memorials, like the many civic commemorations that um, were happening at the period, was to express the community's um, esteem and gratitude for the deceased. deceased sorry. So um, Holbury's memorial was presented as a testimonial commemorative of his dauntless patriotism and of the honor and affection in which his name and memory were held by his compeers. And this really could have been repeated for on each occasion for each of these monuments. Um, Hunt's monument was meant to demonstrate to future generations, I quote, how the people of these times estimated sterling worth and how they appreciated genuine patriotism. Um, when the time came to raise funds for a monument to Sharpen Williams as well, the, the charities were told that displaying such gratitude to the two martyrs was a matter of honor. Um, similarly, the, the committee in charge of um, collecting funds for O'Connor's monument in Kensal Green um, declared that the monument would stand as a recognition of his distinguished eminence in the political service of the people. And Ernest Jones, who was the new charity leader at the time, um, called people to contribute to the fund by, by stating that it would be a disgrace if democracy cannot raise a statue to its hero when the Peels and Pitts and Wellingtons of the aristocracy have their effigies rising all around us. So this memorial, in other words, as, as well as the statue raised in Nottingham, were to be the manifestation of the people's gratitude to their deserving champion. So the monuments were 
defined as testimonials of gratitude as well as designed as object lessons for the atypications both of contemporaries and also of future generations. And they were meant to fulfill as such quite important functions of expression of group identity and also as sources of inspiration within Chartism itself. Um, now, of course, though that's the way they were portrayed um, and there might be a difference with how they were received. So there's a difference between theory and practice. Um, it is quite tempting to assume that the Chartist monuments did achieve their intended purpose as lasting media of remembrance, especially at a time when cemeteries were designed as landscape of both commemoration and leisure and at a time when they were encouraging the visit of the tombs of the departed. Um, to a certain extent, the archives do contain a few tantalizing examples of how they might have indeed helped um, to keep the memories of the radical heroes alive, as well as helped um, and inspired more private and quotidian forms of, of commemoration within the radical community. Um, so, for example, in, in a letter to the Northern Star, um, Jay Shaw, an undertaker, confided that having not yet seen Williamson Charles Memorial, he felt anxious to gaze with reverence on the grave of murdered freedom. Um, and he took the opportunity of superintending a funeral in Victoria Park Cemetery to go visit their tomb. Um, there also, um, there were also after O'Connor's monument was uh, unveiled in Gensel Green, there were complaints that um, it looked nothing like the engraving that had been distributed prior to its erection. So this is quite a negative instance, but these complaints do suggest that um, some radicals who had had access to engraving then made the trip to the cemetery um, and to see the monuments and were able to compare. Um, the example of the old Charles Ben Wilson is also very interesting. Uh, Wilson wrote his memoirs at the end of the century and, and his memoirs he narrates his journey to Nottingham to see O'Connor's statue and to pay tribute to a man he considered as his hero. And that was in 1883. Um, and Wilson is also interesting because he's in many respects, he is an example of the rise of historical tourism in England. Um, in the Victorian period, following the increasing participation in particular working class tourists who could, took, um, could take advantage of the development of the railway system. On the other hand, there is also an argument, and that's something that Paul Pickering has, has argued in particular, um, the argument that Wilson's visit to O'Connor's statue was just an exception and that the common response to O'Connor's monuments uh, was simply to ignore them. And it's, it is quite hard, uh, it, it's hard to prove the contrary, certainly. Um, what I'd like to argue though is that Ben Wilson's example, as well as the other examples of, of visits to the Marshes Grays I've just mentioned, are still worth considering because they might have well have been exceptions, um, but they do hint at what a radical form of commemorative tourism and pilgrimage uh, could have or indeed might have looked like um, in that period. Um, and I'd like to illustrate this a bit further before I finish up um, by taking some time to focus a bit more specifically on the Hunts Monument, which you can see here on an engraving that was published by the Northern Star. Um, and the Hunts Monument is um, an interesting case because it actually shows how a memorial could be quite successfully integrated into the life of the community that um, founded and commissioned it. Um, so in a letter to the Manchester Examiner and Times in 1888, um, a G.H. Crossville from Ardwick 
um, explained that his earliest political recollection was the Cherry's Missing of 1842, when O'Connor laid the foundation stone of the monument, and how, I quote, from then till now, passing it many times every year, I have felt an instinctive impulse to lift my hat in token of respect for a man to whom we are largely our present liberties. The monument was uh, visible from every street, and that's the, the view you're supposed to have on that engraving. I should mention as well, um, I'm not entirely convinced this engraving was uh, to scale. I think it's the engraving that was produced before the monument was um, actually erected in the same idea to sell it to be able to fund the monument. Um, it was also never completed, so I don't know if you can see there, but there is a statue at the very top of the obelisk that is a uh, was supposed to be a statue of Henry Hunt, and that statue was actually never um, never put there because they they tried to collect more funds for it, but they never they were never actually able to um, to to fund it and to have it um, um, placed at the top of the of the obelisk. But it was visible from every street, which means that it would have um, enabled the kind of of um, mundane practice that described by by Crossfield in his letter. Um, Crossfield's attachment to Hunt's memorial, um, his letter also tells us, was intimately linked to family traditions in reference to Peterloo. Um, and from the outset, Hunt's memorial was indeed intended to commemorate both Hunt himself, um, but also the atrocities of the Peterloo massacre. Um, and this was, this was done in various ways. Um, so at the ceremony of the laying of the foundation stone, there was a copy of Hunt's, um, Hunt's memoirs and of his letters from prison. Uh, there was a copper plate portrait of O'Connor, um, and there was also a printed account of the events of Peterloo of the 16th of August, 1819, that were placed in a cavity beneath the foundation stone. Um, and then later on, the unveiling of the monument uh, was uh, symbolically planned to take place on the occasion of the anniversary of the massacre in 1842. So the presence of these mementos quite literally turned the monument into a repository of radical memories. Um, and in addition, I've already mentioned that Hunt was widely celebrated by charities across the country, but his memorial also had a very important local significance. So uh, as much as Hunt himself was really his role in the history of Manchester radicalism that was being celebrated by the charities. And, and this role um, could not be associated with Peter Lewin's commemoration. And this, link between, between Hunt and, and Pirlo really meant that um, this memorial erected in Manchester had the potential to really deeply resonate with the local radical community. And Crossfield example would suggest that it did resonate with the local um, community even a generation later. Um, the monument finally um, incorporating its very design the possibility to be um, using future commemorative rites. So there are spacious vaults that were built underneath it. And they were, um, they were described by this case as they were meant to be um, the depositories of the remains of those who shall distinguish themselves in promoting the principles advocated by the late Henry Hunt. So the memorial then um, both symbolized the continuity between the reform movement of the 1820s and Charism, and it also marks the creation of a new commemorative tradition that encouraged the next generations of, of radicals to show themselves worthy of being remembered and buried in, in what was called by the church later on the Patriots Vault. So there are five men who were um, granted that honor uh, between 1847 and 1854. 
Um, interestingly, they were all members of the committee that had been in charge of um, erecting the monument in the first place. But the fact that they were buried underneath it, and most of the time they were also given public funerals, um, this, this meant that for over a decade, Manchester radicals were regularly invited to gather around Hans Memorial um, and to commemorate various episodes of their history. And each new celebration could reactivate the memories of, of past celebrations. So there was an ongoing commemorative activity surrounding and made possible by the monument. And this is important because ultimately the, the question when we consider these charities monuments and when we try to understand their commemorative value, um, the question is really that of their continued role and relevance in the memory practice of British radicals. Um, and if monuments are indeed, as, as is often argued, designed to last, um, and if they were indeed, to quote Pickering West Coast, um, designed to be permanent statements of a particular nexus in the narrative of a nation, a community or a cause, it is also clear that their persistence in the social and ideological life of a community requires human actions taking them as main focus. And of course, the issue um, that is apparent here is that it, it's very difficult to give a definite answer um, regarding the Charis monuments. Um, the, the kind of attitudes described by Wilson and Crossfield towards monuments and grave memorials um, were, they were either rare or at the very least they were very rarely documented. Um, so it's, it's to some extent it's a matter of speculation whether their conduct was exceptional or whether, on the contrary, they were indicative of these monuments' ability to stimulate remembering um, and to act as repositories of memory for radical supporters. Um, by the end of the century, though, many of these monuments had either fallen into disrepair or simply disappeared. Um, so O'Connor's statue in Nottingham's arboretum was in terrible condition um, and was reported to have a smashed nose and shattered limbs in 1887. Um, Crossfield's testimony in 1888 um, was also prompted by his indignation on seeing that Hans Monument had just been destroyed um, after being judged dangerous and on the verge of collapsing. Um, and there was a committee um, that was formed immediately afterwards for to um, advocate the re-erection of a monument to Hunt. And there was also a fund that was opened in 1907 for the same purpose, but um, neither of these projects really managed to gather much support. Um, and similarly, similarly, by um, 1893, the memorial to Joseph Williams and Alexander Sharp had either disappeared or was too damaged to be properly catalogued among the tombstones that were still uh, standing in Victoria Park Cemetery. For all that, though, um, and I conclude with this reflection, thinking of the fate of the monuments of popular radicalism in terms of neglect and waning memory is perhaps not appropriate. And it is important instead to recognize the possibility that the significance of the grave and of the stone might have only been temporary in, in what Julie Mary Strange has described as a working class culture of post-interment grief and remembrance typified by ambivalence and informed by pragmatism. And the Charis monuments did fulfill important political functions when they were erected, and they did showcase in particular the resourcefulness of the movement in creating opportunities for itself to institute radical landmarks in the British landscape. So the rapidly declining state of the stone memorial to so the heroes of the working classes then, rather than a sign of neglect and forgetting, 
was perhaps simply an indication that the dead were eventually remembered in different contexts and through other more appropriate mementos. Thank you. Okay, um, thanks very much for that, Mamon. That was um, a terrific review of um, <clears throat> of how uh, how memories evolve, how memories are represented and evolve um, in this context. Um, I'm waiting. Uh, if people would like to ask questions, um, you can do so using the uh, Q and A function on the on the screen. So uh, type type in your your questions there, and I'll. I'll pass them on. Um, in the meantime, there's one one point I, I wanted to ask you about, Manuel, and that is um, the use of the term patriot on, on a lot of those uh, inscriptions. And it, it seems that there's rival representations or attempts to, to uh, monopolize or redefine the language of patriotism on these monuments. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how that works as a contested concept in these commemorative practices? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the word patriot at the time was kind of really redefined by popular radicalism. And there was the, the kind of redefinition of the, of the people to put it back at the center of the narrative. And also the people was more and more um, a synonym of the working classes. So then being a patriot was to, to defend the people, which meant to defend the working classes. So for them, the patriotic uh, feelings were actually um, almost identical with the, the kind of the, the radical um, commitment to, to demand parliamentary reform. That's really what you can see on the use of the, the idea of patriotism on these monuments. It wasn't, it wasn't a, defense, a defense of um, the British nation was defense of the British people, and the British people were the working classes for which they were fighting, um, and for they, which they wanted to be able to represent themselves in the in the public sphere, in the in the political sphere as well. Okay, thanks very much for that. I've got uh, two questions have come in, and um, I'll start off with. Uh, one from Daniel Driscoll, and Daniel asks, um, apropos of your final uh, statement, could you say a little bit more about what other ways were these individuals remembered as their monuments fell into disrepair? And did the celebrations of these individuals continue after those monuments were raised? Um, yeah, so to, uh, to a large extent, the monuments are actually kind of just the tip of the icebergs. Um, so the, the fact that they were, they were funded by public subscription uh, first means that there was actually a lot of commemorative activities that were being organized just to, to eventually reach that goal of having the, the monuments erected. But that meant that there were a lot of um, other types of commemorative rituals. So for example, they had, um, they had tea parties that were being organized at which they would have toasts in memory of the martyrs. Um, they would celebrate the anniversaries of the, of the radical dead as well. Um, Henry Hunt's anniversary was commemorated well into the 1860s um, by, by, radical, um, by members of the radical movement, even if Charism had disappeared as a mass movement by then. Um, there were a lot of um, other types of material culture as well that was being produced. So the Northern Star um, had a series of portraits that were being printed and they were reprinted several times over the course of the centuries. So that would be a, a more personal, maybe um, medium of remembrance for radicals. They could have, um, they could buy the portraits and display them in their house, uh, in their homes. 
uh, and we do have examples of um, anniversaries between be, being hosted by radicals, for example, in their homes, and then the walls would have been decorated by the portraits of the patriots. Um, or um, later on as well, uh, old charities being interviewed and the, the journalists going to their homes, uh, make sure to report that they were the portraits of the charity martyrs were on the walls um, as well. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a lot, it was also very much embedded in kind of the cultural life of the movement. So there, there were these sea parties, there were um, poetry being written um, there were in the hymns that were being sung at the um, on the occasion of the funerals were often kind of reused afterwards in other celebrations. Um, they were also being printed and sold to help fund the monuments. Um, there were plays being written and performed for the same purpose. Um, they had concerts. They had so it's it's kind of it's um, the monuments behind it really the the, the fundraising um, effort. Um, Kind of led the way to gave the opportunity for a lot of different types of commemorative practices in the background that we can't really suggest looking at the, at the monuments. It's kind of harder to see if these continued after terrorism collapsed because um, I, we don't have the sources anymore. The the Chinese papers disappeared as well, so it's kind of hard to see if if they if they continued in in large communities. But we do have examples here and there. The ones I've mentioned. Of, of at the various individual people who were radicals and who kept kind of honoring the dead with little practices like like saluting the monument while passing by it or or um, wearing the hat that was associated with them with radical orators that kind of things. Okay, thanks. Um, there's uh, another question that's just come in from uh, Eva Bramock. Um, and she uh, she asked, can you talk about how O'Connor's funeral was defrayed as it was said, as was said on the inscription? Was he kept on ice before he was buried or buried temporarily and reburied with a, with a, a more elaborate funeral? Um, so he was not kept on ice. Um, he was buried a few days after his death. Um, the way it works is often that um, the, the funeral happened and then they kept collecting funds um, to kind of pay the debt of it. So for a few months after the um, O'Connor's funeral, there is still call for people to contribute to the, to the public subscription. Um, and just what, as I was saying for the monuments, these took place with events being organized um, with a view of, of collecting funds and raising funds to defray the expenses of the funerals afterwards. Um, it's also why it took a bit of time for the monuments to be erected that often the radicals had to first pay for the funerals and then start collecting money for the monuments themselves. Um, and most of the time they ended up in this still high. I mean, O'Connor's monument was erected um, and they still owed money to the Mason and same thing for Williams and Sharp's monument. They were, they were still in debt when the monuments were eventually unveiled. So, the money kind of came after and they, they did have to make compromise in the way they were designed. So I think O'Connor's monument was supposed to be in marble and they, given that the funds were just not coming in as much as they as they wanted, they had to, to obviously um, kind of lower the expectations a bit and go for stone instead of marble. Um, but the, the money came simultaneously and also a lot afterwards um, actually. Um, okay, there's another question has come in here, which asks, 
did you find that there are different views of nationhood expressed on Chartist monuments across the nation? So I guess that's across across Britain in its entirety. Uh, was there an agreed nationwide view of nationalism and the impacts these figures possessed in relate, relation to this? Um, I haven't really looked into nationhood, if I'm honest. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure I can give a, a good answer. There is definitely something to be done with more local studies of monuments. Definitely in Scotland, for example, there, were, there was another um, monument to the Scottish martyrs that were being built. There, is, there were national differences within uh, Great Britain as well, but I haven't really, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't really answer if you, um, the idea of nationhood. It's not really something I've looked into. Um, my impression is that it was really down to who, the idea of the people. Um, and the, I mean, Cobbett was a bit different, but with the cherries, it was really down to the idea of the people, and then the people was the working classes. So it's a, it's a very strong class identity, more than I'd say a, a, a national identity. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, could, can I ask you a little bit about uh, the um, statue of O'Connor in, in, in Nottingham? Um, you mentioned um, it's it's in pretty poor repair by uh, later on in the century, but what was there any initial? Um, um, it it does seem to stand out in, in that it's a, an attempt to represent the man, um, quite literally, uh, as opposed to the more abstracted forms of uh, of uh, funerary monuments that you see in the cemeteries. So I was wondering. Was there a discussion or debate within the, the movement about that? Um, not simply by virtue of who, who, uh, how contentious O'Connor was, but um, in terms of representing him as an individual. So we don't really have access to the debatery in the, the form the monuments were to take. So I don't really know why they decided to go with this. I mean, apart from the obvious answer, which is that it wasn't a funeral monument. So um, couldn't really take the, the shape of a tombstone in the same way as the one on, in the cemeteries could. Um, the, they wanted, so the, the O'Connor on that statue is represented in his, um, he was a lawyer, so he was barrister. So he, he's represented in his kind of more professional um, identity. Um, I think that's also linked with the fact that he was, he was elected MP for Nottingham. So he also had that more kind of official, um, not elish, but he, he had that persona as well, which, which fitted with the way he had been um, present and influential in Nottingham as well. But I, do, I don't actually know if there was debate about whether he should be represented as a barrister or whether they wanted him to be represented as a more of a radical um, leader with, with more obvious symbols of, of radicalism. Mm -hmm. um, my guess is that it, I think maybe also partly it was the same thing. It was very much a compromise. So there, were, there was a lot of debate in Nottingham's um, town council regarding the authorization they got to um, build the monument. So it's also entirely possible that um, they were granted the permission to build that monument, but that, that came with some um, understanding of uh, the fact that it shouldn't be too controversial. And then representing him in as a barrister and as, a, as an MP um, was, might have been a middle ground um, to, to allow for that to happen. Okay. And um, 
Uh, James Cashman asks, um, was there a similar process of monument building by Chartism's opponents in the 1850s and 60s? Um, so do we see uh, monuments to royal or aristocratic figures emerging at, in reaction to Chartist monument building? Or, or um, have you come across anything of that ilk? Um, I wouldn't say in reaction to the Chartist movement building. Um, I mean, it, I think it is, it is an achievement for the Chartist movement. I don't think it was actually. And there were contested sites of memory and the, the fact that they had to, to enter a dialogue as regard what the content of the epitaph was and all that does mean that they did have to take into account their opponents. Um, but I don't think the, the memorials that were commissioned by parliament, for example, uh, would have been in reaction to, to mm -hmm. the Chinese monuments. But there were a, a lot that were being built um, at the same period, as I was saying, just in London um, to, to statesmen. A bit later on, there was also the, the martyrs of the, the colonial war that was starting to come in. Um, Wellington obviously would have been one of the men the most commemorated at the time, um, but I, I don't I wouldn't say they were a reaction to um, charities trust monument building really. Okay, right. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you one final question. Uh, the having having spent the last few years researching monuments and commemorative practices, um, I was wondering what would you what would you advise those embarking on research projects to do with uh, collective memory or, or commemoration? And now um, there's obviously a, could you say something about the difficulties of researching the material culture uh, in, of memory in a, in a historical context? Um, so, well, I mean, the most obvious difficulty is that it often doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I think it's particularly the case for um, something like I was doing, which is looking at commemorative practices of the working classes. So which there, there might have been more. I mean, this, the statues commissioned by parliament or the, or the state um, would have been much better maintained. Um, but I do, I do think there is actually a lot to be done, even if that material culture doesn't exist anymore. And that's what I've been trying to do with these monuments, which is that the, especially in the 19th century, there was so much being printed. Um, and a lot of the time, these movements kind of had, I mean, the, the, the press was very much the way charism could have a, a sense of national unity. So even things that were only happening in London or in Sheffield or in Manchester were being reported and were being read by, by charists all, all across the country. So, so they had that incentive as well to, to describe what they were doing. And that came with describing the kind of, of um, monuments they were building or the kind of the kind of banners they were displaying in their demonstrations. Um, and, and because they were so, they also, they were aware of the importance of the symbols they wanted to put, to put out there in the public space. So, so then they, had, they, they were making sure that even if people weren't there, they would know what was there. Um, and that went through the press. Um, and there is also a lot, um, a monument I haven't mentioned there was actually the monument to Ernest Jones that was um, over his grave as well in Manchester. And the same thing, it's been destroyed, but it was destroyed in the 1960s. And there are historians that the firm um, actually documented the monument. So they, ha they are um, photographic, um, there are photographs of the monument. So it's also, I mean, historians before have done part of that, that job. So there's actually quite a lot that can be recovered. Um, so I would say 
to not just to not be discouraged by the, the the lack of physical evidence but by really being creative uh, regarding that because there is a lot of sources that can be used to really um, get to this material culture um, and there is really a lot that can be done with it so just just be creative I imagine okay. yes Great. thanks very much Manu and thanks enormously for a, a really thought-provoking paper um, uh, now, before we, we wrap up, I'd like to just make an announcement of next week's seminar. I hope I'll see, see uh, many of you at this. Uh, next week on the 23rd, um, we have Dr. Jason McGilligot of Marsh's Library in Dublin, and he'll be speaking to the seminar on uh, United Britons and Irishmen, Proclamations and the Insurrectionary Tradition, 1798 to 1820. So I hope to see uh, see everyone there again. I'm sure if we were in a in a conventional seminar setting now, we would have uproarious applause uh, to say thank you to, to Manon. But um, thanks once again, and um, thanks everyone for for uh, coming along and for your questions. And uh, hopefully see you all next week. Bye now. Thank you. The hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library, as well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.